This episode of See Here has been sanitized for your protection. This is called See Here. Of course, what the world needs now is not Love Sweet Love. What the world needs now is a new podcast. Specifically, this is a podcast about movies that are related to music. We'll explain a little bit further as we go on. But my name is Morris, and with me on the other end of a Skype connection is Tim Merrill. Good evening, Tim. Hey, How you doing? And Wendy Freeman. Hey there. Hey, so this, this show should start off with an Australian, a Canadian, and an American walk into a bar or something like that. <laughs> I love the magic of Skype and podcasting because, really, it allows all us people from opposite sides of the planet to be conversing in such lovely and understanding sort of ways and maybe to argue and all that sort of thing. But um, anyway, so, yes, the idea behind this podcast... Well, Tim, Wendy, one of you explain how we came to be in this position. Well, we just we had uh, oh, to sit that episode of Silver and Gold, our dear friends over there at Silver and Gold, where we were talking about the Beatles and music movies, and we just had a blast. We did, we did. We decided to make it a regular thing, not regular as in getting bowel movement. Although we will be talking a little bit about that later on in this episode, but oh, a more than a little. Yeah, as, as in once a month, we decided we'd like to, you know, get our views out there. There's a lot of great film podcasts out there, but there doesn't seem to be anyone who's doing uh, a regular podcast about music-related movies. And we thought, well, you know, there was quite a hefty amount of them out there. So the whole purpose behind this is, you know, once a month, we'll pick a film that's got some sort of uh, music-related theme to it, and it can be a documentary, it can be a narrative. But something I'll get off my chest here for a minute. I think that a lot of people, when they talk about music movies, a lot of people, I, I, I seem to think that people feel it's such a narrow subgenre, where people say, oh, music movies, you mean like The Sound of Music or Pink Floyd's The Wall? Mm-hmm. And it's either one or the other. Mm-hmm. But what people don't realize is that, you know, it's like history, because of the sense that everyone, when you talk about to people about history, they just think that you're talking about, you know, dead people who died in the war, dead presidents, right? But there's so much to history. I mean, you got the history of film, you got the history of music, history of art, history of clothing, history of history, right? right. So I think with, with music movies, there's it's so deep. For example, uh, you can look at The Harder They Come, Jimmy Cliff. You know, you can look at it as we did, you know, we looked at, you know, help. I mean, there's there's so many variations that you can get into. I mean, everything from, like, sunrise, space is the place, to... Go ahead, Wendy, I'm sorry. I mean, I was thinking, like, even, like, a, you know, uh, Streets of Fire, Six Street Samurai, things like, you know, there's plenty of action films that involve people in bands or, or you know, music undercurrents. Right. 
you know, I was thinking about a lot of this when Eric and I uh, covered uh, Human Highway, the GGTMC. Right. And, you know, that's that's another classic cult film. But, but I think that, you know, like you're saying, Morris, you know, like, to define the music movie, it's not just by cult status or popularity. I mean, it, you have the documentaries, you have the pseudo uh, documentaries, like, uh, or the pseudo biographies, you know, for example, like Ray, mm. you know, or other things like that, you know. And then you've got, you know, like the, the classics, like The Last Waltz, or, you know, you've, you've got all cut, or The Song Remains the Same. I mean, there's, there, you know, it's endless, really, when you look at it. There's, there's quite a lot of it out there. I mean, I, I, I guess what's up for discussion is uh, the fact how, I don't know, I mean, I guess how it is. Uh, over in North America, but certainly over in Australia, I know that for a long while, the idea of a, uh, a music-related film, well, maybe more like a concert-related film, I guess, has been cinematic poison. In, in your experience in recent years, how, like Wendy in, in America, if, if there's a, something about a band or, or a concert-related film, can can it be successful? I mean, apart from say Glee, the concert. No, it seems like it seems like yeah, like every year now there's like a Katy Perry 3D or a Justin Bieber 3D or so you know like that's what we get as far as you know. I feel like that's the current concert film thing. Or like there was that that di- that uh that uh LCD sound system. There was like that but concert film with that. Even show. more than that, it just seems now that you know you really can't say you're anybody anymore until someone's made a documentary about you. Because I mean. You know, you you look now like at stuff like for example like Sugar Man, Death, Rocky Erickson's had a documentary made about him and yeah, uh, the big star movie. I mean, right? Well, Everybody. Last, I went yeah. to go see one about Kathleen Hanna. Oh, the Bikini Kill one. Yeah, right. Yeah. She was a girl of the Riot Girl movement. You know, yeah, in the United stand, States. You I know. can't fucking stand her, and I got dragged to that movie. <laughs> But that's the beauty of a podcast like this. We can really speak about anyone or anything, regardless of whether musically they excite us. You know, history. You know, Tim, you're a you're a historian. We've been talking about how much history has to tell us, and in within uh, you know the music documentary world, really a story can be just as fascinating. Uh, or maybe you know, a whole lot more fascinating than the actual art that's being created. Um, really, I think the sky. Exactly. That's the thing. Like Wendy, you know, like you're saying, you, you couldn't stand Kathleen Hanna, but you probably enjoyed the documentary, right? I I gritted my teeth and I made a list of ten more relevant punk rock women. <laughs> sure, sure. But I mean, you know, but I but I think those are the great documentaries. Is that even when you have no interest in the artists themselves, you walk oh, yeah. away with. A greater respect, or at least becoming illuminated about something that you never realized before, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I have seen a lot of, I have chosen to see a lot of documentaries on people I barely knew anything about and became very interested from that, yeah. Did you follow up much on their music? Oh, yeah, I mean, in, in certain cases, you know, but, but, uh, but yeah, in this case, no. I, I hated her going in and I was going with like some other girlfriends who were in bands. <laughs> I was the only one who disliked it. So, so what was it about the film that you didn't like? Was it just like a, a puff piece? It was very, very much like you could tell she definitely was in control of how she was, uh, 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 you know, covered. It was definitely, it was very much like, yeah. It, I, I'm not going to go into. I'm not going. If we ever do an episode on that, we we could do it. But I'm not going to go into my dislike of of that. <laughs> 
it's a whole other episode. I remember, uh, you know, a few years ago watching the Wilco documentary. I'm trying oh, I am to trying break to heart, and I, I think like the aim had originally been that they were going to just make one of those, you know, bonus DVDs that come out with the new CD. But when I can't remember the name of the director, but when he went in and saw the dynamic and especially the tension that was going on between Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett, he realised, oh no, this is no supplementary DVD. This is a bona fide movie that we have going on here. And then to have the Angel Hotel Foxtrot controversy happen in the middle of that. And then to end up with the same label, more or less, at at the end of it. It was an absolutely fascinating story. But I guess, yeah, that is an interesting thing, how you distinguish between those really those DVDs that come with CDs, which are no more than glorified electronic press kits, and the the real documentaries. I guess that have something to say, but you know both would be uh, great to talk about over the over the life of the program for sure. Well, another interesting one was uh, the Lee Von Helm uh, uh, one that, that came out last year, right? And how like no, it, 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 yeah, not in it for my health, and how like it had right. started to be this story about you know like uh, his his midnight rambles he'd been putting on his battle with cancer and stuff, and then it turned into to, like, the thing about that. Um, you know, the reunion, like, how they refuse to reunite the Grammys, you know? Right. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I, I still haven't seen it. Was your interest because of, you know, your love for Levon and the band, or was it actually a well-made film? I mean, was it... It was a well-made film. Like, he's just a phenomenal personality, and I think that's the big key to good documentaries, is your subject has to be a really engaging personality. Right. I mean, so like coming out of you know, recently watching Nothing Can Hurt Me about Big Star, in the end, I sort of thought I was grateful to have something on film uh, about yes. you know, this band, which I absolutely love and adore. But I thought it was a bit slapdash. Oh, we'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I remember our, our good friend and compadre, Mr. Eric Peterson, had gone and sent me a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the 33 and a third series of books about the making of Radio City and it was only because I'd read that that I could fill in the gaps but if I was coming in clean having heard the records but knowing nothing about their history I would have come away very confused about their history just from watching the film it was only because I'd read the book that I felt a lot more comfortable There's a thing that really stands for me with documentaries is that this idea that you know the directors get into a position where you're either it's either one of two stances where you're either making it strictly for the fans or you're making it for a wider spectrum of people and, you know, for people that, you know, you, you kind of clue people into who the band was and you kind of lay down the, the groundwork of the history in the film. But from the first perspective, it's like if you know the band, you don't have to go through any of that shit and it's just, it just gets into the deep, gets deep into the band or the psyche of the members or whatever is there, you know, but, um, I think the more popular to me, the more successful music documentaries are the ones that kind of go for a wider spectrum because it's like they lay down the history and they tell you why this, this band is so vital and where they came from and how they started and where they are now, like how they got from A to Z. And everything they went through, right? I think that's more a far more com- compelling method of uh, film instead of you know just saying, well, oh, here they are in their element, you know, and you know who they are. We're not going to tell you, so let let let's just uh, be a fly on the wall and well, watch watch it unfold, you know, like. Although a good example of that is some kind of monster, that Metallica movie, because that captures them at their most like ridiculous, you know. <laughs> 
You mean <laughs> exactly? You mean the? I make five million dollars a year. I'm not happy. <laughs> yeah, fascism. It's not about like who they were. It's about them in this like horrible, ridiculous moment that they were in at that time. You know. Right. In fact, I took right. probably the, the films that tend to work for me. I guess in the. Um, I guess this is more in the narrative sort of vein is a, a film that captures a period like some kind of monster did. Uh, one of my favourite narrative types of film is um, is Backbeat, about the Beatles in Hamburg. Yes. Now, I mean, okay, obviously you could say, you know, the Beatles, in terms of documentaries, have been done to death. But I like the fact that they took just that aspect. We're not going to try and give it a full eight, nine, ten-year history in one two- or three-hour film, because that's just ridiculous, uh, like they did with, say, Ray or Walk the Line. So we're just going to take this one brief part of their history, and then you know the rest, but this is what made them what they were, regardless of whether it, you know, how factual or not it was, but it was an entertaining, really well-woven story. I know that there were some complaints saying, yeah, Paul was made to look like, you know, the handsome, greedy one, and... And Pete Best was just the dumb drummer who said, well, you know why I have nothing to say, because I'm just the fucking drummer. And, um, you know, George was the quiet... So it, it followed all the clichés, but I still think for all of that, because it narrowed in on that one brief time, that's what made it work. Right. So that's like, there's a very, very popular, there's a very, very popular uh, musical that's been going on in Chicago for a while called Million Dollar Quartet. That's about like the one night that Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash and, and Elvis and Carl, uh, you know, that they all got, Carl Perkins, like all got together. Yeah. And, and so it's like, it's just all this thing about like that one night that's, that's very interesting. I've heard of that one. I, I'm, I'm wondering if they, like they staged it here or not. It sounds familiar. All right. Look, at this point, we haven't even said what it is that we're going to be covering on episode one of, of C here. Oh, boy, you're in for a treat, folks. And it was Tim's choice uh, for episode one. So, Tim, you announce what we're going to be talking about. We're, we're going to be, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a sweet little, delicate little, um, puffy little, um, beautiful film. It's a documentary by Todd Phillips about a man who uh, was very special. And he was very unique. A man who goes by the name Gigi Allen. And the documentary we're going to be covering tonight is Hated. Gigi Allen and the Junkies. Grab onto your bowels! You're about to meet your god! You slimebag junkies are what you're going to get during the next 40 minutes or so! So get down on your knees! No! No, wait for that! Right now, you're going to hear the only true rock and roll What can I say about Gigi Allen? Um, if you can imagine a combination of pure primordial id and a cracked up gorilla at the Brooklyn Zoo throwing feces at the glass uh, barrier with a little bit of music thrown in there just to uh, make it interesting. Um, let me explain a little bit about the history for me with Gigi Allen was uh, 
back in the 80s, back in the days of the fanzines before the internet, really, there used to be, and I think it's still around, um, there was kind of like what we consider to be the punk bible, and it was a zine called Maximum Rock and Roll. And it was based out of California. And anyway, I used to have to go to another city to actually pick up an issue of Maximum Rock and Roll. I'd have to go to Hamilton, the city over, on the bus, just to grab all my zines at the decent record store, to bring them back to my little podunk hometown, yeah? So, I remember sitting in high school, reading, you know, at lunchtime, sitting in the corridor, and reading Maximum Rock and Roll, like, ferociously, and I'm reading this interview with this guy, Gigi Allen. And he was larger than life. It was just the most ridiculous, like, what he was talking about was just, you know, like, I mean, the most kind of, you know, nasty ass, beyond, like, just beyond anything you could imagine, you know. And uh, I don't really want to be offensive to anyone, but, I mean, you know, just all orifices were up for grabs. And he was, he was just bound to bed that he was either going to fight you fuck you, or just basically turn you into a beaver skin coat, you know, like, this guy, this guy was just insane, and me being a young, impressionable youth, I thought, oh, man, this guy's not for real, he, he really doesn't do this stuff, he really, he really doesn't smear shit all over his body, and he really doesn't eat dog food and live in gutters, and, you know, he really doesn't, you know, he, he really isn't a sewer-sucking scumbag like he, you know, professes to be. So I wrote him a letter, and he wrote me back. And I found out very quickly that G.G. Allen was everything that he said he was, and more. So the other thing that I find interesting about G.G. too was that for all the reputation that this guy had as being a total scumbag and a just lower than, you know, lower than a snake's ass, uh, his music, the early bands, like, this guy had been in more bands than anyone. I mean, like, you know, his his discography is incredible. Like, for example, uh, you know, he was with a, a main, one of his main bands, you know, back in the day was the Jabbers, one of the bands he started out with. And some of this music that he played with him was fantastic, just total pop punk, really catchy, really just amazing like you know new york dolls type of stuff and you wouldn't kind of attribute that kind of music or that sound to a guy who was so scummy but then eventually he started to devolve and as his career grew he just became more and more rancid he became more and more you know unhinged he became more and more just a total fucking scumbag as if he wasn't to begin with I mean, just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it did. Right. And then he put together the murder junkies with his brother Merle. And this guy had been, you know, Gigi had been in and out of every fucking jail in the United States. He'd been like, you know, every place that he'd either had his head kicked in or he'd kicked somebody's head in or, I mean, he, he was just basically walking refuse, you know. But with his band, the murder junkies, they went on the road. And this guy, Todd Phillips, I should say, that wound up doing the documentary, 
he did this for his final, I think it was his final project in NYU for the film school there. And he would go on to, he would go on to shoot, you know, The Hangover 1, 2, and 3, and other films like Party Crowd, Wedding Crashers, and uh, I forget what else he's done. But he kind of, uh, what had happened was that Gigi had wound up, was in prison in Adrian, Michigan, for a sexual assault on a woman. And he alleged that it was consensual. And because uh, he didn't give her money for it, she got mad and said it was rape. So um, there, there was kind of a he said, she said to the whole thing. But needless to say, he wound up doing time behind bars. He gets out. And then Todd Phillips thinks this guy is the perfect, you know, uh, subject matter of a documentary. And this is going to be incredible. So he gets a hold of Gigi through his brother Merle and says, hey, man, you know, I want to shoot this fucking documentary about you. What do you think? And he says, all right, well, I'm going to blow off my uh, parole. Um, send me a bus ticket. So Todd sends him a bus ticket, and Gigi gets on the bus, and lo and behold, he's in New York, and it begins. And that's that. You know, can you imagine if so, Todd had applied more of the Gigi Allen sensibility to, let's say, wedding crashers? You know? Mm. <laughs> or the hangover? Like, you know, there should have been... Imagine if he'd gone a little more Gigi Allen wild in movies like that. <laughs> right. We're going to make it in right. Hollywood with that sort of sensibility. <laughs> right. You know, so it's almost like a level. It's like, you know, you, you got crazy, you got fucking crazy, and then you got Gigi Allen. Oh right? yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You could just you could just see a you know, like a Holly a Hollywood uh, studio exec and he's just like, This movie we're gonna make, it's just gonna be totally fucking Gigi Allen and everyone's like, Oh shit <laughs> It's like <laughs> Yeah, and plenty of it you know, it's like Yeah, yeah. So story of his life, who plays Gigi Allen? If someone if someone gets paid off and they say right, we will put out a Hollywood movie. Well, Disney, yeah, Disney, I know Disney one, say we're going to make the one Gigi guy, Allen's line. One guy could play Gigi Allen, and I know who could. Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> He'd take the challenge. He'd take the challenge. I think to anybody who doesn't know Gigi Allen, I mean, like this guy now has become legend. I mean, they've made. Toys, T-shirts. People have had his image tattooed on their bodies. Uh, you know, he was the ultimate in degradation. I mean, you know, musicians that go as 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 low as you could go, he went there. Question: How come the Gigi Allen mustache never really caught on? <laughs> and Merle, actually, Merle you know, I had a very bushy Hitler mustache going. Oh, really? I thought it was a. Jeez. I thought it was his tribute to Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> Surely punk rockers wouldn't do something as tasteless as that. Right. But Gigi had it with like shaved in the middle, and then the mustache, like the Fu Manchu on the sides. So I'm just. I'm just curious why, you know, why more people haven't adopted that look, is all. Right. Well, you know what? I thought I thought he had a total John Waters going on. No, it wasn't like... It was a variation of... 
No, but it was a variation of the John Waters, you know. Was, mm. you know. So, but anyways, you know, let's get really into the John film. Never do anything tasteless with poop. Well, we haven't we haven't gone no. to that yet. Should we should we sort of like run a list of some of the beautiful things that we see in this film? Within the first two minutes, we see a naked Gigi bashing his head with a microphone. We see a naked Gigi beating up the audience. We see him sticking a hot dog up someone's ass, then eating it. Uh, later on in the film, we see him sticking a banana up his own crotch. Uh, we see a woman peeing into his mouth as a birthday present. And we see him taking a shit on stage, rolling around in it, and then throwing it at the audience. Oh no, you missed the highlight right. when oh, the girl's pissing into his mouth and he pukes it. Oh, I forgot. Yes, yes, that's true. Yes. Right. Laying on his back, he pukes it up out of his face. Yes, he did. Yes. Right. And then he eats it. And, and the amazing thing is, is that after he, he pukes all, all over his face, he, he goes in for another swallow of piss. I'm driving. Yeah, right. Well, you know, there's one thing I can say, though, from the beginning. Uh, Michael Board, who was an old famous New York punk guy who had a band called Artless. Michael Board is the guy in the beginning who introduces uh, the the concert where he's like, all right, you slime bags, you don't deserve this for the next 45 minutes. Bow down to your God, you know? And yeah. then when Gigi comes out, I have to say that him naked, you know, he basically has a penis that makes babies look well hung. But I mean, no, but I mean, you know, this guy wound up with something akin to a pig's tail, you know? <laughs> And it's just, it's just like a mangina, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, it's just, <laughs> you see this guy and you expect this naked virile dude and you're looking going, oh my God, you know, is that a, an, a botched sex change or something? Like, holy shit. <laughs> does he have an angry inch? <laughs> right. He does. And maybe, maybe it is Hedwig. GG and the angry inch. Good, good go, Wendy. That's it, man. Like, yeah. Definitely. So, basically, this film, it projects more like a point in time in his life. And, right. you know, as you've already gone and indicated, this was a student film, so it was never meant to be a comprehensive story of his life. And, you know, there, I think there's, you know, maybe a little bit of a token thing as to what made Gigi what he was like, but not really in any depth. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was, Wondering, you know, at first, is this film going to be sympathetic? Is it just going to be a fanboy sort of film? And it wasn't. Um, but it, it was pretty much, here he is, you make you make up your own mind. And I, I guess I like that approach. Right. I, I found, I found or that there, were, there were a couple of moments, though, that I thought were you know, a little bit of clever editing. There's that bit in the film where they're interviewing four of, I think, you know, his high school buddies. And, you know, these are the, you know, the four guys who are living in suburbia, you know, from his old town. And, you know, they're all, you know, probably the highlight of their weekend is, you know, to, you know, drink a whole lot of beers and to, you know, smoke a little bit of pot when the wife's not looking. Uh, and they're sort of making fun of him. It's, oh, yeah, you remember he used to do what he used to do. And then there's that bit later on where Gigi says, you know, well, I just wanted to get out of, um, out of that town and, um, uh, I, I just, I, I didn't want to live one of those lives of born, go to right. school, live, 
pay your mortgage, pay your taxes, have kids and die. It's been said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and nowhere is that more true than in my studio today. Let's meet these artists now, and we'll also meet those who feel their work is nothing but smut. This is Gigi Allen. Gigi is a rock and roller who makes the most wild punk groups pale in comparison. I don't know if you'll recall this, but he made the news recently, Gigi did, when it was revealed that he relieved himself on stage, live. Why, Gigi, did you feel a need to, uh, to defecate in front of a live audience? Well, my body is the rock and roll temple, and my flesh, blood, and body fluids are a communion to the people, whether they like it or not. I mean, I'm not, not out to please anybody. My, my rock and roll is more not to entertain, but to annihilate. I'm trying to bring danger back into rock and roll, and there are no limits and no laws, and I'll break down every barrier put in front of me till the day I die. And there's another bit that's hilarious, but a lack of editing, where you've got uh, Brian Hunter, Unk, and when Unk's, you know, being interviewed, yeah, when Unk's being interviewed, when he's talking about you know, setting up a girl to pee in Gigi's mouth on his birthday, and oh, when he says her name, he, he goes, oh, shit, I just said her name. It's like, all right, we're going to cut that, right? Yeah, yeah, cut. And then, you know, and then keep it all in. Like, that's hilarious. Right? Like, that's... And the other thing that's hilarious is, like, her name is Jennifer, which could be anybody. <laughs> It's like oh, Jennifer's right. a very unique yeah. name. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't give her last name. And, and then, of course, they right. have the footage in the film anyway. So, <laughs> Jennifer, if you're out there with, you know, two two grown-up children, um, sorry, we had to right. say your name on this podcast, which uh, is going to be listened to by the millions. <laughs> you know, something that, that really intrigued me about, about the movie was he would give these speeches about how he has the ultimate freedom and he fucks who he wants and he does what he wants and he shits where he wants and blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, he was constantly being imprisoned, which is the absolute lack of free, you know? Like, was Gigi Allen really free is my question. Well, look, that's that's a great right. question. I, I found myself wondering, and I don't know whether anyone else will, have, will want to make this comparison, but my knowledge of of uh, Andy Kaufman started, I guess, with, you know, watching Man on the Moon and then, you know, reading the book about him. But, you know, it seemed like, you know, at least the point that the film was trying to make was that everything he did was one great big psychological experiment on his audience. And I sort of had to wonder whether that was what Gigi Allen's aim was. You know, it's like, I'm going to do this just to see what I can do with this audience, just see how far they go. No, no, it's not, I don't, I'm only drinking this piss just because it's for the amusement of my audience. Or I'm, I'm rolling around in in um, in feces, but you know, really, what I'd love to do, but when the camera's off, is you know, have a nice cup of tea and a scone, and, and you know, talk about Jean Paul Sartre. Uh, well, here's an interesting thing: is that you know, it kind of gets into, and I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to get all fancy schmancy and get into some bum free intellectualism, but um, socio sociology. There was a guy named Irving Goffman, and Goffman had this theory called dramaturgy, where he kind of said. Life is but a stage, like Shakespeare quoted. There's a front stage and a backstage, and you have the social self, and then you have the private self. And the social self is the person who kind of laughs at a dinner party, and the private self is the guy who sits at home after the dinner party and says, those people weren't fucking funny at all, right? right. And the thing is, for all of us, we have our private selves, and we have our social selves. But with a guy like Gigi Allen, he was expected to be on 24 hours a day. Like, everyone, he was so legendary for being so volatile that 
everyone just assumed that that guy was just ah, like 24 hours a day. And anybody with a brain in their head knows you can't live like that 24 hours a day. Well, you can't live long. And, you know, I mean, I knew people, a, a good friend of mine that passed away, Joe Collin. Joe did the definitive, you know, interview and bio on Gigi. And Joe really got to sit down with Gigi and talk with him. And Joe said, you know, like, when he wasn't playing music, when he, he was a laid-back, quiet guy, he kept to himself. And he was like a dog. If the dog knew you, the dog trusted you, you were fine. And, and if you bothered the dog and you annoyed the dog or the dog felt like, you know, you were kind of strange, he might bite you. And that's just the way he was. But, I mean, he wasn't so... No, I mean, and here's the thing, too, that I think might be the key of... I don't want to go so, too far ahead, but I think it might be the key of the whole documentary is that what happens when you create a persona that is so strong and then all of a sudden you become a victim of your persona? Right. You become almost trapped in a prison of your own persona, right? Where, you know, you have to, you're expected to kind of continue to live out this kind of, you know, uh, degradation or whatever. I mean, like, 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 for example, like Unk in the film, he says, oh, you know, I can live vicariously through Gigi. He does all the shit I want to do, but I wouldn't fucking do that, but he does it for me, right? Yep. So well, he, he becomes like a... a, a persona. He was trapped in a prison of a prison most of the time, you know? <laughs> well, there you go. But he's got, he's got a metaphorical prison and a literal prison. Yeah. Right, but I'm saying, I'm saying, Wendy, that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, he becomes a whipping boy of these people in a way, right? And then later well, on, the it made him even... And even later on, he gets even angrier. He got more pissed off because actually what happened later on in his career is, you know, he almost becomes a parody of himself where he's like, you people want me to throw shit. You people want me to eat shit. You people want me to do this. But you know what? I won't fucking do it because it'll give you satisfaction. Fuck you. Right. So he actually started stopping doing stuff. Because well, he like, knew it would piss people off. Right, like in that scene, like, everybody expected him to kill himself eventually, and that one girl confronting him, like, you're never going to kill yourself, you know? Everybody expected him to kill himself on stage because he kept saying he was going to do it, he kept putting it off, you know? Why don't I what? Why don't I what? Do what? Kill myself sooner? Because it would have pleased you too much, you fucking cunt. Come up here, why don't you come up right up here to the mic and tell me that. Come on. Come on. You want me to? Yeah. Why didn't I kill myself sooner? Why didn't you kill yourself sooner? I killed myself sooner! She wanted me to kill myself sooner? Well, you were gonna have to wait. Because I ain't gonna kill myself on anybody's benefit. By the end of the film, or maybe even you know, halfway through the film, I, I was sort of convinced that this guy is not so much just rallying against society, rallying against what he sees as unjust, but he was just a narcissist. And this, uh, you know, please, you know, give me attention, pay me attention, look at me, look at me, and yeah, I'm going to kill myself. And when he's confronted, okay, go off and do it. No, 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 I'm not going to do it because it will give you satisfaction. No. Because I've got the attention. Well, there is, there are people that have basically stated, like, he, he was, like, right before he died, 
spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> he um, he was planning a European tour, and when he was going to go to Europe, he was actually there was he was talking about lighting himself up in London. He you know he, with kerosene and and torching himself. But I think his brother actually, as much as you know, he was kind of lacking in the uh, DNA department. Uh, Merle had enough common sense to realize he says I, I he didn't want to be a part of any of it. If if his brother was going to off himself, the band didn't want to be involved because they they didn't want to watch him do that. It wasn't a matter of being accomplices, or or it wasn't a matter of them, you know, being like legally responsible. He was just kind of saying, "But he's my fucking brother. I don't want to see my brother do that to himself." Like you know, and but there, you know, but it wasn't just a lot of uh, you know chest beating. I think I think he really realized he he was getting to a point where you know his own life was getting annoying to himself. That he was he was burning hard and burning bright, and I think I think it was getting to a point where he was just kind of like you know, this this ain't gonna last much longer. Like you know, this can't last much longer. And you know, even the last show he he ever did in New York City right before he died, it was it was insane. It was just like him, you know, going off on his band, going off on everybody. Like he he was just so miserable and just so fucking you know like gone. That it wasn't even funny. I mean, right. but you know, I want to say one thing though, and, and and I want to just make a statement right now is that, you know, a lot of people like back in the day, friends of mine always thought that I had this admiration for Gigi Allen. You know, and they're like, "Oh man, how could you fucking like that guy?" And you know, why do you fucking listen to that music? Or blah 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 blah. Right? For me, strictly. The whole thing that I found interesting about Gigi Allen was that, you know, with the whole punk dynamic of punk rock music is that it, it was nihilism. It was supposed to be any everything. It was supposed to be against the system, against any social restraints, against, you know, social governments or organizations or any of that shit, you know, and, that, and that's what punk rock was supposed to be. And I mean, you know, when the Sex Pistols came out with God Save the Queen, you know, or, I mean, you know, the Dead Kennedys killed the poor, and all these, you know, these real heavy statements or whatever, and then it's like, it gets to a point where, is it is it just, you know, rhetoric? Like, where, you know, or is it real? All right, well, it's it's interesting to me, because, uh, like like you're saying, uh, the, the big thing about Gigi Allen, and I dated a few guys who are really hardcore into Gigi Allen, <laughs> is... It, he appealed to the sort of like, uh, you know, the sort of like middle class white guy. Like he appealed to this, this very, very sort of like, uh, uh, you know, guys who felt like they couldn't get ahead in life. Guys who felt like he had this sort of certain appeal and, and, and he was so lowest well. Common denominator. Yeah, the lowest common denominator. And I found myself thinking while I was watching this, like since Gigi is gone, who is the equivalent that we have of someone who is really despised by society, but really embraced by that sort of poor white guy kind of thing? I think Insane Clown Posse are, are like the closest thing we have to Gigi no, Allen. No, I don't. I mean, I think I think there's a difference. There's a big difference because I mean, it was kind of like you know, with 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 Gigi with the the whole punk crowd. You know, it's like everybody. He said he did these things, and then a lot of people said, "Yeah, yeah, you're full of shit," right? And he said, you're right, I am, and now it's on your face, ha-ha, you know, like, and he, 
he really did it. I mean, like, you know, there was people that would go to his shows and they'd say, yeah, man, I'm a punk, I'm hardcore, blah, 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 blah. And then go to his shows and they'd be like, I, 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 and they'd run away, you know? It's like, that's, that's what he gave them. He, he gave it to them. Whereas I think with Insane Clown Posse, you know, those two guys, you know, they're not stupid. They know how to market this shit. You know, they know how to market, you know, dissent. They know how to market, you know, like, fuck you to the system, you know. And I mean, they're right, making they're those two dudes are billion. Sort of, yeah, they're appealing to that same sort of disenfranchised crowd, though, is, is what I feel is interesting. So, yeah, that's the exact expression that Unk in the film went and made about Gigi Allen appealing to the disenfranchised youth of, of America. I don't know. I mean, it, it just, it, I also found it you know, a little bit strange. As someone who didn't really get into punk, uh, I mean, now I'm sort of finding myself, you know, interested in some of the music. But, you know, Uncle goes and says that he heard all these things that Gigi had done and he found them appealing and that's punk rock. And I'm just wondering, you know, what was it about someone throwing shit into the audience and um, singing about, you know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, and running around and beating up his, his audience? I, I can't empathize. I don't understand what it is that made that appealing. You know, to hear high-energy music, fine. To, um, uh, to have a message or something to say, fine. But when when someone is so incredibly angry, that includes you know beating up. I hate everyone. I really. He even at one point, Gigi even like he's in his hotel room. He says, "I hate you, motherfucker. I hate you, motherfucker. Fuck, I hate you." And he really, when he says he hates everyone, that is it. I'm, I'm biting the hand that feeds me. But I mean, you know, like the thing is too. And I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to blow uh, blow smoke up this you know like on, or blow this guy up. But I think. In a way, like, you look at Nihilus in the past, he was, like, just a complete Nihilist, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, but, I mean, a primordial Nihilist, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, a, 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 you know, a gutter Nihilist, sure. But, I mean, like, you look at the Nihilists, like, you know, the whole Nihilist movement, like, in, in terms of philosophy and stuff, where they said everything has no meaning, you know, like, nothing is nothing, like, you know, it's like everything is doomed, like, you know, it's just that whole, like, the end is now, like, you know, and, and he even talks, like, about that, where he says, you know, I, I don't even think about tomorrow, it's just I'm, I'm thinking about right now, I'm thinking about the situation I'm in and trying not to get arrested, and I'm just trying to stay one step ahead of law, and, right. you know. At this point, I want to ask Wendy a question. Uh, yeah. Now, one uh, person in the uh, cast of characters, I guess as we could call them, who we haven't discussed, who we really need to discuss. Is it the drummer? You're, you knew where I was going with that? Dino the drummer. Dino, uh, tell me something about yourself. What are you like? What am I like? Why, I'm just peace and love in the midst of all violence. And I am free, legal, and innocent. Squid the O, Gina, Cindy, Becky, Lunar Chicks are number one. Gigi Rock, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Brooke. When he came like to be interviewed, I thought, oh, hang on. Sorry, am I watching the outtakes from Spinal Tap? Sure. <laughs> First of all, can we talk about the drummer's belief that he has a telepathic communication with the Lunar Chicks? Please. Like, I want to know what the Lunar Chicks end of that was. I want to know if they thought this guy was really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the movie I want to see. <laughs> that, that might be the right. next. Is, is Dino still with us? Oh yeah, he's still playing with the murder junkies. Yeah, yeah. 
You got what the murder junkie's still going on? Yeah, they have a different singer. Oh, yeah, they've been still going on. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. See them with a different singer. Well, you see, you see, this is kind of a funny thing, but it's like I was saying earlier about how, you know, you're, you're trying to make the correlation between, you know, like the Insane Clown Posse and Gigi, where I said, you know, that uh, these two guys, you know, they've made basically a mountain of cash off of, you know, kind of the pseudo-deviancy. Well, Merle, when Gigi died, that was the best thing that could have ever happened for Merle. Because he made a mountain of cash off of selling GG t-shirts and GG CDs and GG memorial grave rubbings and they have the tribute concerts and, you know, the memorial concerts and, and then they kept the murder junkies going with different singers and actually there was a guy, Jeff Clayton from Anti-Scene that was singing with them for a while and then, um, and Anti-Scene had recorded with GG when, you know, back in the day and, I mean, he made, Merle made a ton of cash after the fact which I think is kind of ironic, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like, my brother dies, I'm really sad, but hey, you want a t-shirt? Like, you know, it's like... You know. Yeah, it's so yeah. But right. But yeah, like, that's really interesting, because who would go see the murder junkies for the music, you know? <laughs> that's not why people are going to those shows. My favorite thing in that interview with the drummer, aside from the weird lunatic thing, was, was when he was explaining why he plays naked. Now, Morris, you're a drummer as well. Yes. <laughs> And I can honestly say that sitting on a drum stool, yeah, I, I can understand what he's saying. Yeah, I feel chaffed when I'm wearing pants. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 are, are you are you revealing to us that you also don't like to wear pants? Is that what you're saying? I wear pants because I don't think that the general public would like to see what goes on down there. But are you it does. Pants it does. Right now? <laughs> just not. say no to crack. His justification that wearing pants chafes him too much. I just thought that was absolutely hilarious. Because if there's anything that's comfortable, it's sitting on, like, you know, the cold leather or plastic of a drum stool, you know? No, this is going to sound really terrible, but the funniest bit I, I, I love about Dino in the film is that when uh, Unk's talking about the fact that he says, oh, yeah, Dino did time because he exposed himself to people in the past. And then he says, yeah, he, he got busted for exposing himself to a little girl. And when I talked to him about it, he, he just said he was teasing her. Oh, yeah, that guy was nuts. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that that's just it. Is, I mean, you know, it's like you get you get a collection of miscreants, like so many of uh, these, these, these uh, nut bars that are playing together. I mean, well, the only guy that really kind of had his head on straight was Bill Weber, who was playing guitar with the band. Right. Well, never Bill had played with the cross. Consequently, he's not the one that they interview. I right. I remember. A few, right. I remember a few years ago, I went and read this um, uh, this biography on the Beach Boys, and at one point in the book, they said that Al Jardine had been faithful to his wife, and he didn't do drugs, and he never did any thing wacky like the rest of them did so consequently they had nothing to say about him and obviously this uh, Bill Weber was the Al Jardine of the murder junkies right 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 and you know it's, it's the last time compares Beach Boys to the murder junkies right but we we also have to mention importantly they're they're one week member oh you you're, know, talking the, about, uh, you're talking about D.J. Uh, Allen's penis no I'm talking about the legendary D.D. Ramon Oh, oh, sorry. oh, sorry. You, know, you, you said he's one week member, and I thought you were talking about like the, the little. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Kazing. 
No, like when Dee Dee winds up joining the band for one week. That's right, I forgot. And that doesn't last long after he finds out what they're all about, you know? And we know how intense uh, it must have been to be a, me a member of the Murdered Junkies when Dee Dee Ramone says, this is too <laughs> fucked up even for me. Go ahead. I just... I'm just so so confused as to how he didn't die of some sort of like a parasite from eating all that shit all the time. Like how he didn't die from E. coli or something. I would have thought that would have killed him for sure. Well, that's the funny thing at the right. end of the film. They go and say that, um, uh, that for a guy who for a guy who um, liked to live life on the outside and didn't consider himself part of the rock mainstream and he was always just one step ahead of the law. He died the most conventional rock star way by. Just through... No, he started a yeah. heroin. He over heroin overdose. Yeah. That was right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, what's when, really funny about it is that so, you so know, right. has it been any other rock star who's died from poo poisoning? I don't. I don't know. I, I wish there were. I think. <laughs> I think that'd be a greater myth than like the Mama Cass ham sandwich. You know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, I was gonna say that the uh, the kind of funny thing about Gigi's death was you know. Um, I mean, it's insane. If you see the footage from the last show that he did, he goes out on the street full, like, full on in the middle of the day, buck naked, stops a public bus, and he's standing there, and he's basically bashing his head off the windshield of the public bus and, like, punching this bus. And then the police are trying to show up, and they're looking for them, and then they cover him up in a jacket and then a skirt. And they're trying to get into a taxi, and they wouldn't let him into a taxi because he's all covered in blood and shit. And then finally they get him off, and they take him to this guy Johnny Puke's house where he winds up snorting a bag of heroin that eventually does him in. But um, the irony, it's kind of funny, was that when he was passed out, all the people at the house were getting Polaroid snapshots with their arm around Gigi, and they had no idea he was dead. Oh! So they're all sitting there getting pictures with him, and he's conked out, you know, wearing a little skirt. Uh, you know, like a tartan skirt and a leather jacket, and that's it. And he's dead. He was he was gone. I don't, but, think, um, I don't think it would have stopped the Polaroids if they knew, though. Right. Mm -hmm. There have been more. I was going to say, one thing that we haven't actually discussed is the music. I mean, look, yeah, Tim, because, you know, you and you and Eric did that Love That Album episode, which we called The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Punk. And, you know, you right. went through a whole history of, of uh, punk, and you said punk is not one thing. Punk is many things. So sure. from, from your perspective, was, you know, regardless of... Um, I mean, I, I can't sort of comment because, you know, musically, it's not my thing. I found the whole story fascinating, and uh, I was really glad that you got us to cover this. But I can't speak from my perspective, you know, because I'm inexperienced about the music. As a punk fan... Is, is the music good? I mean, is it considered good by you know, punk standards, or, or is it just, or was it more about the cult of personality? Well, like I said, you know, like his his as his character evolved, the music devolved too. I mean, in the beginning, like Gigi, you know, Gigi and the uh, Jabbers and the and the early stuff that he did, it was more pop punk. Yep. It was more like the Ramones and like more like, you know, the Dead Boys and that kind of thing, right? And it was really catchy stuff. I mean, there was a lot of great early Gigi Pop Punk that is fantastic, and I still stand by that. And everyone's like, how could you listen to Gigi Allen? I'm like, well, you obviously haven't listened to his early stuff. I mean, there was talent there. And he wrote these songs, he wrote the lyrics, and it wasn't all, it wasn't early stuff. Like, wasn't all, the, you know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. It was like, he has a song, Don't Talk to Me, and it's right. like, you know, I, I heard that I'm just, today. Just, uh, you know, yeah, I'm sitting here on the phone, and then, you know, Don't Talk to Me, Don't Talk to Me, it's a catchy song. 
what I'm saying is, as his character evolved, the music evolved or devolved, depending on who you you talk to, and it was it became more more virile, it became more deviant, more about fuck society, fuck the law, fuck everyone, you know, expose yourself to kids, you know, eat my fuck, you know, suck my ass, it smells like all oh, like, it, it just it, it just spiraled out of control and, and and by the last album that he did brutality and bloodshed for all he sounded more like the cookie monster and he's just like you know like rape everyone oh no you know it's like you know and it was just like oh man like you know when when you really paid attention to what the guy was doing and you seen where he came from as to as to where he wound up you know, some people liked it in the end, but then there was a lot of people that were just like, dude, man, like, you know, you were really talented. And, and, and this is a funny thing, is that you just can't write this guy off as a Kardashian. You know, like, you just can't write him off as a fucking, like, you know, just a, you know, uh, a, a, a media darling, you know, or, or, or infamy, because he really did have talent, and he really did, he was a drummer as well. Which, right. which is kind of funny, a lot of people don't know. But he really did have inherent talent. And he really had the ability to write some really great songs. I mean, in the beginning, you know. But, but what happened was that that became eclipsed by his notoriety. It became, you know, and all of it became... And what's even funnier is that, you know, what I was saying about, you know, him not doing what everyone wanted him to do to piss them off... He had actually talked about, in the end, becoming a country and western singer, strictly country and western, because he knew all the punks hated country. So he says, well, I love country. That's what I want to do, and I'll do it just to fucking piss him off. Did he do, did he do more than one album? Well, he's done multiple. He's done multiple recordings of country. Like, he recorded a lot of country songs when he was in prison. Because, like, I mean, he, he, you know, and this was the thing too that's really kind of funny about this guy. As as much as you know, he, we we've talked about the one and how he was an animal and how he was unhinged and how he did all this, you know, repellent shit. He was also on the ball in terms of marketing himself. Everywhere he went, he had cassettes. Every town that he went to, he'd find a little studio and he'd come up with 200 bucks to record a 45 or to record a 7-inch or whatever and to put out new music. And the thing is, it's really interesting, is that he could go from town to town and find guys that would want to play with him. And they'd, and they'd just sit down and record. And all of a sudden, he's got a new band for two days. They'd record something, and then he'd be gone. 
And then he'd wind up finding somebody to press his stuff. And that, I mean, like, if you really look at Gigi Allen, like, in terms of his discography, you, you know, this is the thing that's kind of an anomaly where you think for a guy who was living so wild and so, you know, hard, you wouldn't expect that he was able to put out so much music, but he did. He put out a hell of a lot of music. Oh, there's a ton of stuff, you know? And this is, this is the thing. Where, you know, it kind of like, this is going back to what I was saying earlier, where it's kind of like, look, if this guy was living this life 24-7, there's no way he'd be able to, to you know, like, it's 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 like being a, a, a complete psychotic, you know, if you're mentally ill, you can't say, well, okay, well, I'll be mentally ill from 9, 9 a.m. to like 5 p.m., and then I'll just be a normal guy for the rest of the day, right? Like, you know, if you're men, if you're fucked, you're fucked, right? But with him, he actually found the time and he found the means to, to record and, and to go in and do all these things, you know? So it, it kind of, you know, a lot of people might say, well, then it was just an act, you know, like him playing live and him doing what he did was all just a kind of a shtick, you know? But it really wasn't a shtick. But what it was, was it was just one facet of this guy's personality. You know, it's like, you know, like I said, it's like a dog. If you look at a dog, you know, we look at dogs as being cute, but at the same time, they can bite you, right? And at the same time, they shit. And at the same time, they eat their shit. And at the same time, they roll around in filth. And at the same time, we love them. And that, right? that's partly the problem, I guess, with the documentary. So we've spoken a lot about Alan uh, and, you know, Dino and you know, the and the cast of thousands in the film, but uh, I, I guess in, as in any documentary or in any film, uh, the director has to take the tack of right. This is the angle I want to present. This is not a comprehensive um, tale of Gigi's life. Uh, we're not going to. We can't present to you the sensitive side or or the quiet side. Uh, you see, right. That's the problem I have with this film, though. The one real gripe that I have is that if they were able to kind of go back and show. Because he was a father, he had actually, you know, he has a daughter, he was married, he was a regular Joe, and he got into the whole kind of glam scene, actually, like around the early 80s, you know, like almost like Motley Crue and like the L.A. scene, like, he, he was really into kind of like Cooper and all that type of thing, and then he just wound up going really deviant, right? But I'm just saying, if the film had, had gone and shown kind of the transition, then it would have been more meaningful because everyone would have went, well, wow, this guy has some kind of, you know, like really poppy music or whatever. Like, what the hell happened? Like, what, what triggered him, you know? But instead, the film just kind of shows the blah, like, you know, but they really don't show anything else. Well, well look, there, there is the one the one moment that makes you think that maybe there was more because you see him uh, that, that little bit of footage where he's in a room by himself strumming on the guitar and playing Warren Zevon's Carmelita and that really took me by surprise and I thought wow there's uh, you know he does have another you know, musical side to him I mean uh, sure, I was say, sure. uh, earlier on today um, I went you know it's a bit of a YouTube uh, rabbit hole and came across the song Outskirts of Life and even though mm -hmm. lyrically it was still, you know, within I, I guess yep. the same right. sort of subject matter that he did within um, within his more uh, hardcore punk style of thing, you know, I I hate everyone, everyone hates me, yeah, you all, but it was done with a whole lot more melodicism. So, right, uh, yeah, but yeah, so yeah, as you say, you know, it, 
really do. the film I don't I don't know do you think the film paints him as a bit two dimensional um yeah I mean I think it does in a way because you know it's like you know it, it's it's there's there, they put holes in it I mean like for example they go back to his hometown and they have that one teacher who talks about him as a kid and he's saying you know well he, he never caused anybody any trouble in class and you know he you know he just was a regular guy and then and then you have his friends who said well he wore women's clothing to school and he got the shit kicked out of him a lot and then you wind up you know everyone's saying well where does this all stem from and then they talk about his father and then you know with with merle talking about his father and how insane his father was how he dug four graves in his basement of his house and they lived in a log cabin and there was no electricity and no water I was father wondering if that them. was true. I was wondering about the validity of that story. <laughs> or if that was more creating... No, no, no. There's a lot of truth to that because, you see, the thing was was that his father was the one who actually labeled him Jesus Christ Allen when he was born. His father named him Jesus Christ. And then his mother divorced his father after a number of years, and separated and took the boys, and she was the one who gave him the name Kevin, Kevin Michael Allen. And then, you know, from there, you know, he... and Gigi was... Actually, the, the funny thing about Gigi was that Merle had always said that because he'd been called Jesus, Merle, as a little kid, couldn't say Jesus, and he just kept saying Gigi, Gigi. So that's where the tag Gigi came from, right? Okay. But I wonder whether I've always wondered whether or not it came from Iggy. You know, I've been I wanted to make mention of this. I'd forgotten, but um, you know, we, you and I, Tim, we'd previously been discussing that. Uh, that Iggy. makes me wonder, you know. And 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 also, yeah, I did did a, a podcast recently with uh, Eric Peterson talking about Iggy Pop, and you know, we we I, I think we made the point about how, you know talking comparing say Iggy to Alice Cooper. You know, Alice was all about theatrical danger, but Iggy seemed to be a whole lot more dangerous. But you know, Gigi was a whole lot more dangerous yet again. Right, and it makes you wonder whether or not it's like you know this guy. And I mean, this is this is just it, right? It's just like you wonder whether or not he actually had the intellect to kind of consider the fact that you know there has to be an evolution. To there has to be a, a, a de-evolution, evolution. If you know what I'm saying, it's like you know everybody thought Alice was bad, but then Iggy came out, and then they all he's bad. Well, then well, what's after Iggy? You know, like there's got to be something else. You know, yeah, yeah. so it makes me wonder whether or not he he, he even pondered that. You know, whether or not he, he thought how far you know like these guys took it that far, and you know, it, you know, it's almost like uh, Jack Nicholson in Batman. You know, as a Joker, he's like get a load, you know, get a load of me you know like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he comes out and it's just like holy shit you know like and that's just it and and, and what, what's really sad to me is it's like you know the way the way we are so kind of absorbed as a society with media figures and these kind of figures that come out of nowhere and how people gain notoriety right you know and, and it's just like you know how do you get people to take notice anymore aside from shitting on the floor and rolling around in it and eating it and throwing it at people? I mean, you know, like a fucking gorilla, you know? It's like... Isn't that, they do like, yeah, you know, Isn't that why that's popular? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, but like I said, you, you know, if it was just if it was just that, then you could 
dismiss him as a just complete reprobate and a complete, you know, moronic, you know, sad sack case. But when you look at the music that he made in the past and some of his acoustic stuff, I mean, you know, and, and again, you know, I, I have to make a statement that, you know, I'm not behind any of, you know, the, the, the intent or the music that he, uh, the, the lyrical stuff, because, I mean, he was, you know, pro-rape, pro-hate, anti-black, anti-everybody. Like, you know, it was just any anybody that, you know, it's like, well, who can I piss off? Well, who do you have? You know, like, like that's it. You know, he, 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 he was against everybody, you know, and, and I, and I think, you know, it, he was a, he was in a, a situation, I think, where it's like, you know, how, how could he reach as many people as possible and piss as many people off as he possibly could? Well, I have to write an anti-Jewish song today, so then I have Jewish people that hate me, and then I got to write an anti-black song, so then black people hate me, and then I got to write an anti-rich song, so rich people hate me. Like, you know, like, it just seemed like a lot of the music he wrote was just, you know, to cover all bases, like to have all people basically despise the guy. He he, he cheaped that for um, for uh, I guess a good chunk of society, and yet you know the so-called disenfranchised seem to say, yeah, 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 we hate them too, we hate them too. Yeah, you you hate us, yeah, we hate us too. I want to ask that what what did you guys take away from this film? I mean, you know, I've seen. Like, Film Threat Video, I should explain that um, Film Threat was a magazine that was out in the 90s. And oh, yeah, Film Threat was kind of like an yeah, underground kind of indie film magazine. And Film Threat had a video division where they would kind of, you know, uh, put out these films independently. Like, for example, Necromantic 1 and 2. And uh, there was a lot, the Red video, uh, there was with Lawrence Tierney. There was a bunch of things that Film Threat put out. But then they were the ones that initially put out, hated this documentary. It was through the magazine. Because nobody in their right mind, there was no studios or anybody that would touch this thing with a 10-foot pole, right? But Film Threat put it out. That was the first time I got to see it because my buddy Joe was a comic book artist and um, he was writing, he was doing panels for Film Threat, you know, doing pages. And part of the payment that they sent him was um, they sent him some promo videos and they sent him G.G. Allen's Hated. So he watched it once and then he was just like, this is yours. This is all you, man. Like, nah, no, 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 no. And then, you know, I, I watched it and I was blown away. But, but I mean, I've seen this thing like over, you know, 50, 60 times, the video. But, you know, just because it, it, it's, a, it, it's one of those things where you love springing it on people. And you're like, look, I know this isn't you. I know this music isn't you, but you got to see this. Tell me what you think. You know, and you can just spring it on people. And all you have to do is just sit back and look at their face. Watch their eyeballs get wide. <laughs> Wendy? Hello? Yeah, yeah when had, I had you I, seen this before? Yeah, yeah, I'd seen it. I'd seen it years ago. Like I said, I've dated guys who also gave me the same arguments about how I should like Gigi Allen because at one point he was melodic, you know, like Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah, I've seen this before, and I and I've I've heard uh, you know the arguments pro and con uh, for Gigi before, and yeah, I mean, I just think I think he's a an interesting figure, you know. I mean, I I feel like he's, I feel like. If you didn't have someone like him, you'd have to make it up, you know? <laughs> right. um, I, I remember a, a few weeks ago, I, I watched this twice in preparation for the show. Uh, I'd never seen him. I'd 
never listened to anything. I think I'd been vaguely aware of his story or who he was, and I'd never had the nerve to actually watch the film. But, you know, I'm glad that uh, this podcast uh, forced me to, to actually do so. But uh, it was it was interesting. I think, uh, you know, a few weeks ago after I'd watched it for the first time, I put a post on the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema or the, you know, the GG TMC. Um <laughs> The GG oh, Allen, uh, hey, oh. Allen TMC Facebook page. And it was fascinating. I think there was a lot of responses to it. And it must have been about 40, 50 responses. And it, he clearly divided people up. There were some who were still convinced of uh, either his brilliance or his importance. And a whole bunch of other people said, no, nope, he's just a fucking scumbag. It's the emperor's new clothes if you think he's great. Right. And completely divisive. And I just, I, I found that fascinating. And in the end, it doesn't matter what I personally think about the music or, you know, because quite clearly this is really, it's not my bag. Although, you know, some of the country tunes that I've been like listening to on YouTube, I thought, you know, were just wonderful. But what I came, it was, it was just a fascinating story. And I think that's, you know, going to be the beautiful thing ongoing with the podcast and you know, whether we watch the documentaries or, or the narratives um it, it's it's the story you know the i don't want to say the music's incidental because this is a music related podcast you know that that might be a separate discussion but right. i guess coming out of this and we discussed this a few minutes ago was that you know maybe you know because of what you've gone and said tim the film couldn't quite give us a well-rounded description of what he was like. You know, you've gone, you know, made the analogy. You know, a, you know, a dog will bite you, or a dog might lie faithful by your side. Yeah. So in the end, I just don't think it really matters terribly much about whether the music was important to us as film viewers. But it was still, it was still a great tale, even if it was only one perspective of the guy. But uh, I'm still interested enough to go out and you know search out whatever other information that there that there could be about him. Um, there's one thing that a lot of people may not realize is that Gigi actually was planning on starting, uh, when he finished the whole punk rock thing, he was planning on starting a prog band. And, uh, <laughs> he wanted, he wanted, he wanted to do prog versions of his music. He was going to call it the Gigi Allen Parsons project. <laughs> no, seriously though. I, uh, was, was this going to be his major chin was going to be brown eye in the sky? No. That's right. Exactly. I scumbag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no, like I think I think that this film is like I said, you know, earlier when we we were talking in the beginning of this recording about how great documentaries actually will draw you in and give you perspective about artists that you might not even really like or artists that you might not even really understand, but then after you you watch the documentaries, you kind of get a different insight or something completely, you know, like it compels you to continue to watch it. And, I mean, with this one, you might say that it's the equivalent of a car crash, you know, drive by in a car crash that you can't take your eyes off even though you wish you could. But um, I think that there's something to be said here, like that this is really one of the, uh, the better music documentaries that I've seen. And I mean, it's one of the more legendary docu you know, music documentaries because when this came out, I really, and I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, make the stretch and say it's, it's at the same level, but, um, 
this is almost like the Mercedes brothers, uh, give me shelter where, you know, like would g give me shelter when all that shit was happening live and how, you know, people were dealing with a situation that was out of control and, you know, and somebody was getting killed and, and, and it, there was music still being played and, you know, the stones were just kind of like, what the hell's going on? It, it was, it was just something happening in the midst of a concert that was, you know, most people just weren't really ready to accept or ready to, you know, get a grip on. Right. So I, I think in that, in that aspect, I think, you know, it has similarities to give me shelter in that way that, you know, it's kind of like, you, you know, you're, you're a fly on the wall to something that's happening and, you know, a lot of people aren't liking it, but a lot of people are there and it's just, they're still grooving and it's kind of that, you know, that really, the aura of, of really bad shit going on, you know, but, um, but I've, the, the last thing I want to say is that this film though, as much as I say that, you know, it's necessary viewing, you should be, you should be aware that this is definitely not for the more sensitive and this is definitely not for your younger viewers. Oh, this film no. is, uh, you know, no, no, uh, no, maybe, maybe, maybe Charles Manson's kids. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Charlie's family definitely would be into this one, but, um, and I should, no, also, I, mean, I should also add, if you want to find this film, it is on YouTube in its entirety. Right. But know your friends, know your friends before you show them this or you might lose them. <laughs> All right, well, with that, uh, I think we can call a close to uh, episode one of the See Here podcast. And I'd, I'd like to uh, thank everyone who uh, took a chance and downloaded this. Hope uh, you like. I think we, I think here on in, you know, we might not be uh, covering material quite as uh, full on as um, hated. But uh, you never know. We, we might come back to that sort of material from time to time. So, Wendy, it's your choice of film next month. You chose something that also has a bit of a punk-related theme. Uh, yeah, I chose, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains because uh, yeah. I know I yeah I saw it like on Night Flight or on USA. I saw it like on one of those like years and years ago. It's much like your Human Highway story. Like I remember seeing like half of it on TV late one night and being really blown away by it. So I just wanted an excuse to rewatch it and uh, and form my own opinion. You know, at this at this stage of my life. I haven't haven't seen that one yet. So. Um... Look forward to having a bit of a discussion for that on next month's See Here podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And I should also, I just want to make one final quick announcement. The opening theme of our show was composed by my son, Max. Um, a little bit of nepotism there, but, you know, hell. Uh, you rock! rocks! Max, Max rocks. And um, I, I begged him. I said, please, please, please compose a theme for the show. And he said, well, all right, you know. <laughs> Max, so shy, so demure. Yeah, yeah, that's him. I said, don't forget yeah. to pay him them royalties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. give, give him a little extra, like a like five cents extra in his allowance every week. Yeah. Right, right. The irony is, I won't be, I won't let him listen to the podcast, at least not episode one of the podcast that uh, <laughs> his music has been a part of. Maybe episode two will be a little. Bit You're not gonna let him right. see. You're not gonna let him see Gigi. Uh, no. I am. I am sort of diversifying what he can see now. He's getting older, but. Not that one yet, no, I don't think so. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so next month, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains, and I'll um, I'll post on the usual places because at this point in time, as we're recording, I don't know where I'm going to uh, who I'm going to be putting this podcast with. I haven't gone and created the Facebook page. I haven't gone and created an email. But uh, by the time you'll have downloaded this, you'll be aware of all this sort of thing because I'll be relying on some of our friends to help publicise at least the first episode. 
so you'll be aware of all those details after you've downloaded this one anyway. But uh, from next episode on, we'll um, give you all those details on a, uh, on a monthly basis. So hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, when you're aware of what the email address is, please send us feedback. We thrive on that. And tell your friends that this uh, music discussion, uh, music film discussion podcast exists. And um, right. if you know from us from our other ventures, please support those. Wendy, quickly tell us about your other ventures. Oh, I am on the Double Page Spread podcast, where you can hear me interview comic creators and talk about comic books. Recently, I talked about uh, The Fifth Beatle, which was a great graphic novel about like Brian Epstein. Wow. Well, yeah, I, it's really good. I think you'd really, really enjoy that a lot. I'll be getting that one for sure. Yes, and, and, and also, I am a co-host of the Trashy Shows, where we talk about very, very sleazy, filthy movies. Un- completely unlike the movie that we discussed tonight. <laughs> Thank you very much to uh, Wendy and Tim for um, agreeing to this venture. I'm really, really excited and um, looking forward to doing many more Thank podcasts you, man. with you. Yay, thanks. All right, and uh, cheers to all you yes. folks out there. We'll see you next month on the See Here podcast. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.